Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today in the newly horror spooky season. Yeah, it's 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 the Halloween times. Close. I mean It's like September. Yes. That's it's like it's like a whole month of like Christmas Eves, you know? Yeah, it's it's after Labor Day. And it's before Halloween, ergo, it is the Halloween season. Sure. What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are watching The Ape from 1940. You sound so excited about this. <sighs> yeah, I, I got a bad feeling about this one, Sarah. <laughs> um, the Ape... Are, are you Han Solo now? Always. The Ape comes to us from Poverty Row Studio Monogram Pictures which was one of the larger B-movie producers. So that's kind of the first sign about the movie's potential quality. Okay. We have seen one movie from Monogram before, uh, and that was 1934's House of Mystery. Hmm. In 1935, the owners of Monogram were talked into merging with fellow Poverty Row Studios' mascot, Majestic, Liberty, Chesterfield, and Invincible to form... <laughs> Republic Pictures. I'll never get over the Chesterfield Pictures <laughs> name. I love it. Republic was owned by Consolidated Film Industries' Herbert Yates, who all of these companies were in debt to. Mm -hmm. Hence, the merger was a way to get them out of their debts. Monogram was the largest division of Republic when it was formed, and once Republic was in existence, it was the largest of the Poverty Row Studios. Yeah. However, Monogram's founders, uh, W. Ray Johnston and Trem Carr, found that they hated working with Herbert Yates. So Johnston left for Universal, and Carr spun Monogram off into a solo entity again in 1937. Okay. How does one do that when they're in debt... Like, how... I assume... Huh. Well, I mean, I think Republic was formed in 35, so basically within two years he must have restructured enough that he could basically pull out of the deal. Okay. So Boris Karloff had been under a six-picture contract with Monogram. We've mentioned this in previous episodes. Was a six-picture contract kind of out of the ordinary? No. No? Whether that's, like, a lot or too few <laughs> to be, like... Generally... Actors signed contracts that were under a number of years rather than a number of films. But you do occasionally hear of, like, contracts that were a certain number of films, um, especially when you had an actor like Karloff who was kind of between long-term gigs and just trying to feel out where they might want their permanent home to be. They might sign, like, a ten-picture deal or a six-picture deal or whatever, um, and the studio's hope is that they'll stay forever kind of thing, right? Sure. Now, five of these six monogram pictures Karloff had done had been Mr. Wong detective movies, uh, in which Karloff played the titular Charlie Chan ripoff character. Mm -hmm. Those movies were all directed by William Nye, who had also directed House of Mystery back in 1934. Yeah. House of Mystery was an adaptation of the stage play The Ape, Mm -hmm. So Monogram still had the rights to that play. So what was... I think we've talked about it before on the show, but I don't really remember. I know that there's a relationship between the ape and the gorilla. Well, I'm not a biologist, so I don't know what the difference between an ape and a gorilla is. I think one is a type of another if we want to get real technical about it, but I was talking about the plays. Yes. Can you tell me about those? <laughs> sure. We have talked about it before. That was in episode 44 on The House of Mystery. But perhaps the reason why you don't remember it super well is because there's not a lot mm. on this play. The Ape was written by Adam Hull Shirk, and it debuted in 1924 by the Paul Gershon Drama School in LA. Okay. 
I guess it did fairly well as there was a later 1926 production and the LA Times reviewed this production as having thrills galore. <laughs> but it's a play that's in the, the long line of old dark house style of plays. Sure. Now, since you've brought up House of Mystery already, if you remember, it kind of tries to poorly situate itself in horror. But I think it's kind of important to acknowledge that the play might not quite have been fully in horror. When we were covering films in the 20s, they were all adapted from murder, mystery, thriller, horror type plays. Mm -hmm. um, and these are plays like The Bat, which was kind of the most famous one, adapted from a story called The Circular Staircase. Its stage version was 1920. Um, Ken the Canary was a couple years later. The Monster was one. Right. So there's a ton of these, like, murder mystery plays coming out, doing super well, being adapted into films, like, three to five years later, and then The Gorilla comes out. And that's 1925, and it tries to be a bit of a parody of these earlier films. The Gorilla is hugely successful, and the ape rips off the gorilla. Right. Quite heavily. As you might, like, maybe guess from... The, the name. Yeah. Yeah. And the gorilla had a few film adaptations too, didn't it? It did. So its first adaptation was two years after it debuted on stage in 1927. And then it had a sound remake in 1930. And then kind of a purely comedy adaptation in 1939. Right. Now because horror films have this basis in these plays, I thought it would be good to go over the tropes that are established in them. Mm -hmm. And they are that there's a big dark house, people are stuck in there for an evening, mm -hmm. there's lots of characters, there's some kind of mystery, there's comedic relief and romance, and death is on the line from something. And right. usually it's the something Thing that kind of changes from film to film. For example, in the case of The Bat, it's a criminal dressed up like a bat looking for money in the mansion. Um, in the case of The Gorilla, which is trying to kind of parody The Bat, there's a guy dressed up as a gorilla. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also like an actual gorilla on the loose. And similarly with The Ape, there's an ape on the loose. An ape or ape-like thing being on the loose is not a new trope to film. No. Um, I mean, most recently we've seen it in Son of Ngagi, House of Mystery in 1934, The Monster Walks in 32, and then kind of the earliest example on film, at least, is Murders in the Rue Morgue mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, from 32, which is kind of the most, like, boundary-pushing sure. of all of them. Now, given that the first one is the most boundary-pushing, uh, all of the ape-based <laughs> ape monster movies that we've seen have been fairly tepid, and using an ape, at least in my opinion, even in the 40s, feels very playing it safe and low-risk. It's also maybe worth saying that, like, I think there was a lot of apes even outside of the horror genre... Like, just yeah. in Hollywood in general, right? Like, I like mean, even before King Kong. Right, but I mean, like, obviously King Kong, but yeah. certainly, like, before with uh, movies like Ngagi and um, just tons of gorillas and apes everywhere in Hollywood. Yeah. Hey, fun fact about Ngagi, since you just brought it up. Um, I talked about it in the Son of Ngagi episode. It's supposed to be an ethnographic study, so it's, it's trying to market itself as a documentary. But it, in its credits, it says it was written by Adam Shook. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so they're trying to, like, link Ngagi to the ape play, even though there's nothing similar. Right. And remind me, I might be off on this, but I'm pretty sure the ape slash House of Mystery, because I haven't actually seen the play. I've just seen House of Mystery. Yeah. Um, also, like, linked things to, like, weird... Hindu religion curses and stuff? Yeah, so the gorilla, 1925, kind of brings in the gorilla aspect 
into the old dark house, and then the ape brings in this Hindu curse element into the mix, um, and we see that, I assume, replicated fairly accurately in House of Mystery, where this guy was on an expedition in India, pissed off some Hindu priests, and uh, sort of married one of the uh, Hindu priestesses. Right, yeah. Um, like, common law type deal. And she can control gorillas thanks to her Hindu powers. They're not very clear about no. what the magic is, so please, give, like, listener, please give me some slack with how generic I'm being. Sure. Um, and in House of Mystery, like, that's the setup, and they use the ape to murder people who are um, relatives of investors in that original expedition, uh, coming for, you know, what they feel they are owed, and the ape gradually starts to kill some of them, we get the mystery explained to us by a Scotland Yard detective at the very end. Yeah, a lot of these old Dark House movies have Scooby-Doo endings, basically, where the mask is pulled off, you know, the bat gets revealed as being someone, the weird, ugly monster dude in Cat in the Canary gets revealed as being someone. In House of Mystery, it's actually an ape. But isn't there... There is a, a nut, like, there's yeah, both a real yeah. ape and a dude is an ape? Yeah, so, like, there's a real ape that escaped from the zoo, like, two weeks earlier. And there's also, one of the investors is dressing up like an ape, so he can snoop around the house to look for the, the hidden money, because he owes money to the mob. Right. And he thought dressing up as an ape would be inconspicuous. Of course. So, uh, that's the guy running around in an ape suit. But he gets, uh, killed pretty early on. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, so, yes, there is a guy just in a suit. Um, but there is, I mean, in House of Mystery, there's no actual apes on set. It's... Yeah, yeah. It's a man in a suit regardless, but in the fiction of the film... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And since we're on House of Mystery, if you do want to check it out, it's episode 44. But I can just kind of quickly recap it for you. Basically, we felt that it was old then. Yeah, it was already feeling old-fashioned. Yeah, um, a direct quote of you, Ben, is that if you told me this was from 1930, I'd believe you. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's significant is because the horror genre didn't quite solidify until after 1930. There's too many people in the film, too many comedic shticks. The film understands that, oh, these are the tropes we need, but doesn't understand how to use them. Mm. So everyone is crowding around the camera when the reason you have so many characters is so you miss when someone goes missing to go do something mysterious. And honestly, we, we just kind of felt that it doesn't quite work as horror or as a mystery because you get all the clues you need to understand what's going on told to you in the epilogue. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have an opportunity to figure it out yourself. Um, and you called it recycled garbage. Wow. Yeah. And so at the time, it ranked at the bottom of the list, which was number 51. Currently, it is at number 75 with only Torture Ship, Condemned to Live, and Son of Ngagi below it. Wow, so it's still pretty close to the bottom, huh? Yeah, it might as well just be at the bottom. Sure. So given that history, I am not too excited about seeing this movie tonight. Yeah, so... The bar is pretty dang low. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that kind of means there's nowhere to go but up? I, I, don't, I don't think it will. <laughs> so during the period that Karloff was making his detective movies for Monogram... Uh, he was also doing mad scientist movies for Columbia. And Monogram must have decided that it was time to get in on that action. Get in on that mad scientist money? Yeah. So the decision was made to readapt the ape with a Karloff mad scientist angle added to it. And this must have seemed like a pretty reasonable course of action, given that the gorilla had been remade the year before as a comedy with Lionel Atwell, Bella Lugosi, and the Ritz brothers, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's like, well, maybe, maybe this is the trend again, right? <laughs> the Ape was announced as a top bracket production for Monogram, 
which basically meant that the company intended to spend about what a major studio would spend on a low-budget B-movie. Okay. To write the new scenario, Monogram hired Kurt Siedmak. Now, uh, Siedmak had made a name in horror since arriving in America, having written Invisible Man Returns and Black Friday for Universal. And we talked about Siedmak's background um, in Germany in our Invisible Man Returns episode. So they, they got a writer who had written horror for, like, the horror studio uh, to come in. And for the ape, Siedmak decided to keep the central element of a character disguised as a murderous ape and then jettisoned all the rest of it. Um, which, okay. which he considered to be patently old-fashioned Yeah. Um, in favor of a totally new story that would have more of a mad science focus and be more like a ripoff of the Columbia Mad Scientist movies Karloff was making than a ripoff of these old Dark House movies from ten years earlier. I agree with those decisions. Mm. I mean, the pro- They make more sense than just redoing an old Dark House type deal. On the other hand, like, we're starting to get real sick of these Karloff Mad Scientist movies, too. Yeah, but it's a different studio, different writer. Like, mm. it, there's the potential for it to be different enough. Oh my god, now I'm... Now I'm rooting for the ape. Why? What? <sighs> it is the same director as House of Mystery, so yeah. I will bring that up. I mean... It's been seven years. He might have gotten better. Yeah. So, you talked about how, you know, there's never any real apes in these movies, in the sense that it's always a dude in an ape suit. Whether it's a dude in an ape suit in the story or not, on set it's always a dude in an ape suit. Yeah. So to portray the titular ape, Monogram turned to stuntman Ray Crash Corrigan. Is it a good or bad thing that he has Crash as his middle name? That dates from his high school football days. Oh no! When he would just tackle the shit out of people. Sure. Crash Corrigan was a physical fitness instructor to actors in Hollywood and also owned a ranch called Corriganville that basically had lakes, caves, streams, and an entire, like, western town, and, like, a farm with a barn. And basically, he just made his money renting Corriganville out to producers of westerns. Yeah. His day job, though, was as a stuntman. And generally what he did was westerns, because those required, at least in this era of film, the most stunts due to, you know, horseback riding and and all that kind of stuff. However... When he wasn't doing stunts in westerns, he was probably in an ape suit. Um, So as we've kind of alluded to, the 1930s to 50s were a time in American cinema when apes were particularly common in movies. Why? And most commonly, they were played by men in suits. Um, I mean, you could get a real ape on, but like... They are not easy to train and very dangerous. And expensive. Yeah. Or you could do, like, the King Kong route that, you know, Willis O'Brien would do in that movie and also, like, Mighty Joe Young and stuff, but... Expensive. And time-consuming. And apes were so popular. I mean, there's the, the, the very famous thing about, like, you know, the... What was it? The, the three surefire ways to get, like, someone to buy a comic book were... To have an ape on the cover, have someone crying on the cover, or have the color purple on the cover. Like, those were, like, the three things that would make okay. your comic sell more. So get me a purple gorilla who's crying. Yeah. And that's why, like, every second DC comic in the 1950s has, like, an ape in it. That's why there's, like, ten different talking ape villains. I don't... I don't get it, Ben. So this ape mania led to a cottage industry of ape men, stunt performers who made and owned their own ape costumes so that when a production needed the services of an ape, they would rent out both the suit and themselves as the performer under the suit and sort of, you know, have a bit more money basically this way. 
um, while saving the producers money because they didn't have to make their own ape makeup or suit or costume. Um, so it sort of worked both ways for everybody. Corrigan was one such ape man, as was Charles Gamora, who we saw in Murders in the Rue Morgue, um, and also George Barrows. Uh, so those were kind of the three biggest ape guys. Now, owing to the nature of Hollywood credits in this era, um, these men were rarely, if ever, credited for these performances, but connoisseurs of ape movies can identify which is which because each performer used their own ape costumes. So And they, they probably brought a little bit of a different performance. But it's it's yes, but it's it's really the difference in the suits. So the ape was released on September thirtieth, nineteen forty, and uh it received mixed reviews. The New York Times called it old fashioned and dull. Yeah. While the LA Times called it engrossing and praised Karloff's performance. Yeah, but LA is where like the ape premiered like twenty five years earlier. Like that's where it started. They're biased. I don't think that's a valid argument. I think it is. <laughs> no, that's twenty years difference. Yes. Whoever liked the ape in the twenties was probably dead from polio by then. Oh my god. Uh, after the release of The Ape, appearances of Karloff on screen would be rare for a time. Um, save for two films finishing out his Columbia contract in 1941 and 1942, because he was cast in the Broadway show Arsenic and Old Lace in, oh. the, in the role of Jonathan Brewster, which had been written specifically for him. The show was an immense success and ran from 1941 to 1944, uh, although it is probably best known today from the movie adaptation, in which Karloff's role is played by Raymond Massey, but in the, like, stage play, like, people remark to Karloff's character that, like, oh, you look a lot like Boris Karloff. So, the ape, as you may be surprised to learn, is in the public domain. If they love apes so much, why is it in the public domain? And uh, because of that, it can be found on our YouTube playlist. Awesome. Well, folks, now you know where to watch along. You can find that YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Watch along with us. Throw popcorn at the screen, as we most likely will, and we will be back after the break, and we'll discuss The Ape, directed by William Nye. You're so biased. We'll see you on the other side, everybody. Listen, objectivity is a lie. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Ape from 1940, directed by William Nye. How you doing, Sarah? This show is called Scream Scene. Mm-hmm. But was there any screaming in the scene we just watched? I... The closest is, like, towards the end, when, like, Francis is, like, screaming about the doctor, like, oh, Doctor the Ape, watch out. That was about the closest. But there's no, like, Fay Ray screaming because I just saw something. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah. This movie was weird. Yeah. In a way that I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. But for that to make sense, I guess we'll give our customary plot summary first. Go for it. We're in a small town. The kind of, like, everybody knows everybody else kind of small town. And Boris Karloff plays Dr. Adrian, who is a... His full name's Bernard Adrian, by the way. Why does he have two first names? He um, is a research scientist, and we learn a little bit later in the movie that he basically got kicked out of a research foundation for his, you know, daring and unethical experiments, as it were, and came to this small town which was basically suffering a polio epidemic, where everyone was having um, cases of paralysis. Mm -hmm. And 
the implication that we get from his backstory is that all of his previous patients died because he was trying these experimental treatments on them, and so for that reason, the townsfolk don't like him very much. He has one current patient, uh, Frances, who's a young woman. I think she's supposed to be, what, 18? And Frances has a boyfriend, Danny, who is a car mechanic and doesn't like Dr. Adrian too much uh, because he doesn't like what he doesn't understand. And at least he's honest when he says that. So the circus is in town, and everybody goes and has a great time. One of the things they have at this circus is an ape, and this ape's a bit violent. Apparently it killed, like, a trainer sometime long ago in the past, and that trainer's son is now its trainer, which seems like a (laughs) bad, like, job choice on, like, circus management's part. With traditional jobs, uh, it, it the job goes down the family line. Right, I mean... Like, I, this is my father's factory, no, and no, his I, father's before I get him, that, and, but like, and this is my father's ape, and sure. his father's before him. I, no, I get it. It's just like, that ape killed your... De- like, he's not going to be a good trainer, which he isn't. He's super abusive to the ape. The circus manager's like, hey, don't be abusive to the ape. That's going to get you killed, like what happened to your dad. And it does. Um, he gets killed, and the ape escapes, and the circus burns down. So now there's an ape on the loose in this town. The townsfolk bring the trainer to Dr. Adrian, hoping, like, he can save this trainer's life, because he's been, like, badly mauled, but maybe there's a chance. And Dr. Adrian is like, or I use him for experiments. He's going to die. Yes. Um, Dr. Adrian has figured out the cure for polio... With animal testing, but he hasn't used a human yet, and he needs a human. So what his cure is, is, and I mean, so polio, sidebar, polio was super rampant and super common in America at this time, like the 30s and 40s, and it was not like a curable disease. Like, if you had it, you just had it. That was the end of the line for you. And it wasn't cured until sometime after World War II, Uh, with the advent of antibiotics and the understanding that, like, you know, about bacteria and infection and things like that. And it's, like, you have to be vaccinated against it. You can't still be cured from it, right? Um, No, you'd go on an antibiotic treatment. Okay, but then vaccines stopped it from happening. Yeah, you you take a vaccine so you never get it. If you get it, you take antibiotics. Obviously, they didn't understand that when this movie was made. So the theory here is people are um, paralyzed. So Dr. Adrian is going to remove spinal fluid from this trainer who's going to die. And then the trainer will be dead. And then inject the spinal fluid. Like, do, do, like, stuff to it. It's not just, like, a straight... Yeah, he makes it into a serum or whatever. But he injects it into Francis. So the idea is she can't walk, take the spinal fluid out of a healthy person... Put it into her. That's the basic concept. So he does this, and it's it's like she can now feel her legs, but she still can't move them. So it's a step in the right direction, uh, but it's not enough. So he figures he needs more spinal fluid. Unfortunately, there aren't any other, like, random dead people lying around for him to take it from. Meanwhile, the ape's been running around town, and the sheriff's got a posse out, and they're trying to find this ape. And the ape finally comes to Dr. Adrian's house. Uh, We learn later that this might have been because it was attracted by, like, the smell of the dead trainer's jacket that's still in the doctor's house. And he sees it through a window, and that's why he crashes through. Mm -hmm. And he attacks Dr. Adrian, and Adrian, like, throws some, like, fucking, like, science chemicals in its eye. (laughs) And then, like, stabs it in the back. And then he's got a dead ape lying around, and he's like, hmm... Hmm. Hmm. And you think at this point he's just going to use the ape's spinal fluid. But no. No, he comes to the totally reasonable conclusion that if people need to die for him to get spinal fluid, and everyone thinks there's an ape on the loose, he'll dress up as the ape so that he can kill people, and people will think it was the ape, and he'll take the spinal fluid. Which, like, as far as, like, methods of murder go... I'll be less inconspicuous if I look like an ape. It certainly is one. So, one of the things this movie does is, all throughout, it develops, 
like the personalities of all the people in this little small town and gives you lots of scenes of them interacting and, and you know, being quaint and small towny. And one of the reasons they do this is so that they can have characters like Mason, who's basically just the worst person. He's just mean to everyone and like he's cruel to his wife who he's like cheating on with someone else and everyone knows it and he's also like a lone shark who's like just a huge jer- like he has no redeeming qualities and the reason he has no redeeming qualities is so that Karloff as the ape can go and kill him in the middle of the night and take his spinal fluid and you don't have to feel bad about it exactly so adrian injects more spinal fluid into francis and now she can like move her feet but she can't, like, walk yet. So he still needs more. Meanwhile, like, the sheriff and his posse, like, can't find this ape, but they keep noticing, like, his dogs respond when they're near Dr. Adrian's house or when they're near Dr. Adrian, or, like, when the ape is spotted, it's, like, in the vicinity of the doctor's house. So after some detective work, they decide, the sheriff decides, that he's going to basically post, like, all his men just around the doc's house all night and see what happens. Adrian goes out as the ape again, attacks a dude to kill him, but this dude stabs him with a knife, and so he doesn't get any spinal fluid out of him, and it's like, oops-a-daisies, and he... He's injured. He's injured, yeah, by this knife. So he retreats back to Adrian's house, and then everyone sees him, so they assume he's the ape going to attack Adrian. That's what Frances thinks, and that's why she's calling after and and drawing attention. And so they corner the ape on its way into the house, shoot it till it's dead, and then I don't exactly know, like, what would make them think to pull its face off like it's a mask, but they do. And, oh no, it's the doctor. And then um, Frances rolls up in her wheelchair, sees the doctor dead, and is, like, distraught and basically stands up and walks forward to go to the doctor. And it's like, oh my god, she can walk. Uh, But the doctor's dead. Tragedy. But hey, she can walk now. The end. And she gets a happy ending with Danny. Yeah. Um, One thing that you missed is that at some point between Adrian going to kill the third person... Oh, I forgot about that. um, Someone from that research institute that had kicked him out 25 years earlier comes by to be like, hey, we noticed... For some reason, we were examining these bodies, and we noticed that the two dead people had spinal taps done to them. What's up with that? And you were doing weird experiments. What's up with that? Oh, I see. The girl can move her leg. We're totally into this. Keep us in the loop. Yeah, I I didn't mention that, I guess, because that subplot doesn't end up going anywhere. Like, it's just a... But it's like the film trying to legitimize what the experiment is, which is super weird in the idea of, like, a mad scientist kind of movie where you're supposed to be, like, like appalled. Well, it's a weird cul-de-sac because it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. Because, yes, this scientist shows up in town, he's examined the two dead bodies, found they both had spinal fluid removed, goes to Dr. Adrian, is like, hey, isn't that weird? Adrian tries to brush him off, and then he confronts him like, hey... I'm from that same institute you were from. We know what type of research you're doing. Like, I know why you took that spinal fluid. I know you killed those guys, basically. Like, you, well, like they, that's what you think. He doesn't yeah, say yeah. that. But and, that's and, where you think it's going, is that this is this guy going to be like, yeah, I'm on to you. You think this guy's maybe going to be the hero who solves everything, or at least that's where I thought it was going. And then Adrian just shows him, like, see? It works. She can walk. And he's like, oh, dope. Well, bye. <laughs> Which is why I forgot about it when I was doing the plot summary, because it doesn't go anywhere. Earlier in the context part of the show, I was given, like, apes a hard time. I do think it is cool, just for the record, that there's, like, professional actors who, like, do ape suits and, like, have a particular performance of it. Um, And I gotta say that... Crash Corrigan's suit is, like, really impressive, and the way he acts in it when he's being an ape is actually very impressive. Yeah, I, I, you're, I thank you for bringing this up, because, yeah, I think one of the few things that impressed me about the production of this movie was that Crash Corrigan gives, you know, the, the dual performance of when he's playing 
a real ape versus when he's playing Adrian in the ape suit, and it's clearly, like, a totally different physical performance. Yeah, he's just, like, walking like a person when it's yeah. someone in the ape suit, which makes sense. And, like, sense. looking around to make sure no one sees him. Um, but when he's the ape, like, it's very, like... Like, if you've seen apes, you can tell that it's not a real ape, but it's a fairly convincing performance, and also he is incredibly huge. It's a very dominating, domineering suit, I guess. The amount of space he takes up when he crashes through a window, mm-hmm. I had a moment of like, whoa. Yeah, and you can see his, his real eyes through the, the mask, and um, the suit's mouth moves and snarls, and, you know, so it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a well-made... Uh, suit for sure. Yeah. Another thing that you um, skipped, and it doesn't actually mean anything to the plot or anything like that, I just think it's a neat thing that the movie did, is we're seeing a bit of the sheriff's process, and he goes and questions Adrian, like, why do you think the ape might be hanging around here? And Adrian's like, well, I got the trainer's coat. He's like, okay, cool. And then the next time we see the sheriff, he's driven out to where the circus now is. And it's like, why would an ape, like, confirming the story, being like, okay, so it is plausible that the ape would be hanging around because of this. Strange that he doesn't have, like, there's no evidence of the ape going to eat any fruit or anything from, like, people's gardens or anything. Maybe there's something going on that's leading him back here. We see a little bit of his process, and it has no... Honestly, it's probably just to pad out time. It has no bearing on the plot. Everything we learn from this part of this the story, these scenes, are, have already been explained in other scenes or explained after when the sheriff's telling his, like, posse why they're looking at the doctor's place. But I just thought it was an interesting way to pad out time. Yeah, so this, this brings me to the thing that struck me the most about this movie. Sure. Which is, um, so this movie's bad. <laughs> but it's not stupid. Yeah. Like, like the thing that I noticed about this movie, and, I mean, this basically all comes down to the script being from Kurt Siedmak, who, you know, as we mentioned earlier, wrote movies for Universal. And it's that the things that make this movie bad are the fact that it was made by Monogram. Like, the fact that it was made for no money. Right? Like, if this movie was an A picture from a major studio... I could see it being done in such a way that would overcome a lot of its flaws because a lot of its flaws come down to it being cheaply produced and kind of dull and, and, and boring and not having a lot of tension to it just because, I mean, it's just because of the way it's shot. Like, every time you're in a location, it's the camera's in the same place in that they clearly shot every single scene in that location in one setup at one time. There's no yeah. angles, there's no close-ups, there's no, it's all very proscenium stuff. But the script is good. I mean, and, and Karloff's good, but that kind of goes without saying at this point. I mean, he's playing the same misunderstood, kind, but driven to extremes by pressures doctor that we've seen him play like six times now. Yeah. But yeah, the script by CMAC is quite smart. I mean, the spinal fluid thing is a plausible... You can see where he got there, where like... There's blood transfusions and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Organ transplants. Yeah, it's a plausible idea. A lot of the things that happen in the movie are very well justified. It's a very smart movie. You know, it's not brilliant. It's not doing anything, like, amazing. But you can tell that the person who wrote it is smart. I think one of the telltale ways you can tell it's smart is it's very much on Adrian's side. Even if he's going out and killing people, the movie's attitude is almost kind of like, yeah, but he's only really killing, like, mean animal trainers and jerk-off loan sharks and country bumpkins. Like, what does it matter? <laughs> country like, bumpkins? Like, like the movie... Well, why would you put them on the same... I'm not. The movie is. Sure. What I'm okay. saying is, like, the sheriff is shown as being kind of smart, so the movie respects him. And, you know, Francis believes in the doctor, so the movie respects her. But the movie doesn't have a lot of respect for the townsfolk because they're all portrayed as kind of being idiots. Or at least being people who don't trust in, like, reason and science. Or even, like, hard work. Like, like the sheriff will set members of his posse out to, like, you know, watch certain areas. And they'll, like, grumble about having to, like, 
do things, basically. And it all gave me the impression of a script being written by, you know, someone who probably likes smart people and dislikes average Joes. Because, like, I feel like in a, in a lot of Hollywood stories, like, Danny the car mechanic would come off a lot more heroic than mm. he does. And instead he comes off as kind of like an ignorant prick sure. in this movie. And that to me is like, oh, a nerd wrote this script. You know what I mean? Like, sure. that's, that's kind of the impression I get. So I would agree that this film is smartly written. Don't think it was written to be a horror movie, though. Yeah. I don't think it's a problem in the execution. I think looking at the way that our main character who is doing the deeds is legitimized and praised, like, to the point where Francis and Danny are talking about the rumors that are going around the doctor, Mm -hmm. and she says something along the lines, in all seriousness, that those rumors are as dark and black as the spills of oil on your shirt, Danny. It's like, excuse me? Are we, like watching Leave It to Beaver? Like, is there going to be a moral at the end of this story? It doesn't feel like it was written to be a horror movie, especially the, with the, like, amount of, like, time we spend looking at the circus stuff. The amount of time we spend with, like, look, Francis is getting better. Yeah, I don't think... Here's the thing, and this is the other thing that I think is interesting about this movie. I don't think this movie knows what genre it is. Yeah. Because I think, I think there's enough in here... That you could... It's a science fiction drama. Mm, but is it, though? <laughs> it's a science fiction because it's, like, a cure for something during experiments. So, like, very broad science fiction in the sense that there's okay. science involved. Right. And, and it's, it's a drama because it's about, like, people's relationships. But it's also a movie where a dude dresses up as an ape and hunts around at night murdering people. Like this is what I mean. I don't think it is I don't think it's anything. Yeah. Like I think it, it, it I I don't think you can cohesively say, "Oh, it's this." Like cuz it's not cohesive. I think I at least for me, I detect three different genres in this movie. Cuz I think there is part of this movie that's a horror monster movie because it's still a movie about either an ape on the loose or a dude dressing up in an ape suit and murdering people at night. I don't think those parts of the movie are very successful because they're at odds with the other parts of the movie, which are, like, there's another part of this movie that's supposed to be, like, a tragedy. Yeah. Right? Where it's like, oh, what a tragedy that this guy died just as, like, his research was finally vindicated and, like, the townsfolk didn't understand him and, like, if only he could have blah, 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 blah. The genre that takes up the most of this movie is a genre that we don't really, like, see a lot of, I don't think, anymore. Or if we do, maybe it's morphed into something else that I don't know about. But it is a genre you saw a lot in the 30s and 40s, which is it's biopics of famous scientists. Now, this is a fictional movie. But structurally speaking, in terms of the characters and the scenes and the arcs of the characters, this movie feels like it could stand alongside movies like The Miracle Worker or The Life of Emile Zola or any of these movies that are about, you know, scientist who comes to the breakthrough that saves his patient and then goes on to save a ton of other people, right? Like, this is the, you know, the biopic of the guy who cured polio in structure, except... That we don't have an actual cure for polio yet, so we gotta make up how he gets there. Well, and it's, yeah, and it, and that his cure for polio involves dressing up as an ape and murdering people at night. And so, Murdering person. He murders one person. True. And attempts another. That's true. Like, it feels like a Beauty and the Beast beginning that goes off the rails, because the way the, the villagers treat... Adrian is, like, the way everyone treats Maurice. Like, sure. what a weirdo up in his garage. Learning, reading, science. Um, this book doesn't have any pictures. But, like, the other thing <laughs> oh, that it... Oh, Danny. The other thing... Those opinions are as black as the oil on your shirt. The <laughs> other thing that this movie feels like is it feels like what happens... And I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before or not. But sometimes what you get with cheap movies 
is scripts that get written to take advantage of like a bunch of pre-existing ingredients that the script must include. So, because this movie really feels like someone told Kurt Mac like, Boris Karloff has to be a mad scientist like in those Columbia movies where he's kind of right but kind of wrong at the same time. There's got to be an ape going around killing people. You obviously got to have, you know, the young couple. We've got an agreement with this town that we can shoot there for like two weeks. So it's got to be set in like a small town. We've got a bunch of stock footage of circus acts, like like trapeze and stuff. So you got to work that in. Like that's sort of what it feels like. It feels like Seed Mac assembling the best story he can from like pre-existing non-negotiable elements because I cannot figure out why you would tell this story like if you were just setting out to tell this story from the get-go why you would have an ape like why the ape would be a thing right it's clearly we've got the ape and we built the story around that or the ape and Karloff well we we, we know we start with the ape and Karloff he was given the script from this awful, like, (laughs) super racist, gross, terrible, like, bad movie, Mm -hmm. um, and told to put Karloff in it, and Sidemag did the best he could, and so getting rid of everything else except the ape, it's like, okay, well, how do we get an ape in here? Well, apes are in the circus, okay, so maybe there's a traveling circus, and you know, circuses, where do they go? They go to small towns, okay, so in a small town... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, it, it's, it doesn't feel like a natural story. It feels yeah. like a story made out of parts. And that's why I feel like the genres feel conflicting, because it feels like it is in a genre in, like, you know, when he's in an ape suit or whatever, going after people at night. Like, it's, you know, a horror movie, but then it's not when it cuts to other things. Sure. And, like, it, it, it would be a good tragedy if it just ended on, like, her crying over his dead body, but then we get, like, the last scene where she's, like, happy with Danny or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's better than House of Mystery. Yes, but it's not going on the list. It's better than a lot of movies on the lower half of the list. Still not going on the list, Ben. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, so it's not a horror movie? No. Okay, your call is it's a sci-fi drama? That's what you're going with? Yeah, I do like your, um how you identified this, like, scientist biopic thing. Yeah. Um, hero-scientist. So yeah, Hero-scientist yeah. drama. Yeah. That's what I would call this. With an ape in it. <laughs> like, you gotta, you gotta throw some thrills, you gotta throw some action, otherwise people are gonna fall asleep, Ben. So we're, we're not ranking this? I, you'd have to really, okay, really argue for it. Okay, that's Yep. Okay. Moving on. Well, so this film will go on the miscellaneous, not applicable, sorry, you're not horror, so we don't like you. That's not fair. Not applicable part of the list, which you can check on screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. If you'd like to contest uh, the placement of this film on the not applicable part of... If you saw The Ape when you were four on, like, Thursday night chiller movie theater... Uh, you know, on your local television, and it scared the crap out of you because you were four, and so in your opinion it's horror and should be ranked, like, drop us a line. And you can do so at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com in our ask box, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. On whatever service you listen to us on, be sure to leave a rating and a review if that is a feature those services allow. Algorithms. You can find us through our RSS feed through most podcasting apps. Another way you can help the show is by spreading the word. If uh, you know people who are interested in bad B-movies from the 40s, because that seems to be mostly what we're doing these days. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's the end of September. We're heading into prime spook season. October. It's, it's Spooktober. Spooktober. It's Halloween. Everyone wants to know about those good old movie recommendations, especially if they're public domain on YouTube, because then you can just throw them on without paying anybody any money. Uh, yeah, let them know about the show. Let them know about our playlist, let them know they can check out past episodes and find out what movies are good. And we have so many films on the list that you could watch, like, 
two a day in October and you'd still be fine. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the number one movie on the list, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, is on YouTube for like $4. Like, go watch it. That's a steal. Or just uh, let people know about us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, share the show, share the site, uh, let people know about us. Another thing that we'd really appreciate is if you wanted to check out our Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and there you can sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At that level, you'll get a thank you on the show, but at the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus audio cut from past episodes. At the $10 level, there is unique original horror fiction that I write, and I'm hoping to do some special stuff in the coming weeks in the lead-up to All Hallows' Eve. Patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Are we still in 1940? I think so. We will be watching The Door with Seven Locks, which is a <laughs> Edgar Wallace adaptation. Sure. Uh, who did Dark Eyes of London. Okay. And, uh... I think we'll be seeing the American version of it, where they retitled it Chamber of Horrors. Okay. Uh, The door with seven locks more accurately describes me if I was living on my own in a big city. (laughs) Um, Like London? Like London. Um, The Chamber of Horrors more accurately describes uh, not me. Good joke. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent structure, <laughs> fine rhetoric, <laughs> a fine build-up well, like, to a well-thought-out and uh, immensely appreciated punchline, good form all around, to be studied for years oh, to come. Thanks. An excellent... Cool. So we will be watching A Chamber of Horrors the next jo- week. Yes. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. (laughs) Bye. Bye.